Get ready for a one-of-a-kind experience. Welcome, welcome to the Starter Zone, your home for the weekly news from around the world. Your host for this journey, Amanda. Those darn cats. She's going to bring you everything you need to hear about entertainment, gaming, and maybe just a little bit bizarre. Hold tight, because here she comes. Aw, thank you, Raven, for that warm, warm welcome. Hello, hello there, my friends. Good day to you all, and welcome to the Starter Zone. I am your guide, Amanda, and it is time to bring you the headlines from all the entertainment news sources. Today is July the 26th, 2023, and we are going to check out some changes at Twitter, a haunted movie set, a legend in the music world has been lost, and an I told you so from James Cameron. Let's get comfy, everybody, and get started. noticed a very big change in the Twitterverse. The iconic blue bird has been X'd out. Well, Twitter has officially begun rebranding to just X as owner Elon Musk announced some new changes to overhaul the social media platform's identity entirely. He said on July the 23rd in a tweet, soon we shall bid adieu to the Twitter brand and gradually all the birds and added in a follow-up tweet that if a good enough X logo is posted tonight, we'll make it go live worldwide tomorrow, unquote. Well, that change has begun as the iconic Bluebird logo has now officially been replaced by an X logo. But the logo of the X just, it's temporary and it apparently will be replaced at a later date. And additionally, the domain of X.com automatically redirects to Twitter, although References to the Twitter brand are still present for the time being. Since he purchased Twitter for $44 billion last year, Musk has implemented pretty sweeping changes to the platform. User verification became a legacy feature. It was replaced by Twitter Blue, which is an $8 a month subscription. And organizations have to pay $1,000 a month for that gold verified checkmark. Now, TweetDeck, which is an interface that allows you to see multiple timelines at once, will also become locked behind a verified user paywall starting in August. Temporary reading limits were placed on accounts this past month in an effort to combat what they called extreme levels of data scraping and system manipulation. Twitter, or X, is also now facing some new competition from Facebook and Instagram parent company, Meta. They launched Threads pretty recently, and it offers a really similar service to its users. Although the recent reports seem to indicate that the hold Thread has on new subscriber numbers seems to be unraveling a bit. I mean, it's an odd change to be making, and one could speculate that it's just 
one more thing Musk is doing to put his mark on the, the product. He's very fond of the letter X. He stated this very clearly. I mean, his most recent son is called X. Is this a troll from Musk or is he very serious? And all indications seem to be that this is true. I mean, we had a, an instance where uh, in, I want to say it was the New York office, where a, a building has Twitter down the side of it. I mean, it's one of their headquarters. And they had a, a truck come out there to start taking the letters down because they're replacing the sign. And they had to be stopped because apparently they didn't have the permit to be able to do this modification that they were doing. But it really seems like if this is a, a troll, if this is a joke, Musk has taken it pretty darn far. All indications right now seem like this is pretty serious that what he's doing. So it's going to be kind of interesting. And I mean, honestly, what are we supposed to call these things? I mean, they're no longer going to be tweets. What are they going to be like X spots, X marks, zitters? I mean, for the love of all holy, do me a favor. Do not start Googling X videos. You don't want to go there. I think. I'm not judging. But in the meantime, X is a nose, my friends. So Variety is reporting that Spotify is finally raising U.S. premium subscription prices. Finally? I mean, we've really been waiting for this excitedly. I mean, as expected, Spotify has finally raised the price of its premium music streaming service in the U.S. to $10.99 per month. This is the first such price hike since the service launched back in 2011. The move is coming only months after pressure from the music industry and musicians and seeing each of its competitor raise prices to a similar degree. And the Wall Street Journal reported back on the 21st of July that such a move was imminent. In wording that seems oddly apologetic and reflects the CEO and co-founder, co-founder of Daniel Eck, his long resistance to raising the prices, the company made the announcement in a blog post back on the 24th of July. He said the market landscape has continued to evolve since we launched so that we can keep innovating. We are changing our premium prices across a number of markets around the world. And these updates will help us to continue to deliver value to fans and artists on our platform. Starting from today, existing subscribers in these markets will receive an email explaining what this means for their account. And in the U.S., it reflects as premium single 1099 premium duo 1499 etc i will leave the link down below to go over the new pricing structure i'm not going to bore you guys with you know starting shoot shooting out numbers but i'll go ahead and i'll post that for you spotify which per its last earnings report it's the world's largest paid music streaming service it has about 210 million subscribers that's a lot of people And it's also increasing its premium prices in about 50 other markets. And that includes Canada, a lot of Europe, the markets in Asia, South America, and Australia. And it says premium subscribers will be given a one-month grace period before the new price becomes effective, unless they cancel before that grace period ends. That's generous. The move is coming a day before the company's second quarter earnings. Uh, on July the 25th before before the market opens that day. So the pricing has now gone into effect for these subscribers. 
Now, Eck has previously said the company is considering a price increase in the U.S. following Apple Music's increase. He said, when our competitors are raising their prices, this is really good for us. And he said this on the company's third quarter call back in 2022 in October. And he noted that the company had, to that point, raised prices more than 40 times in markets around the world, just not in the U.S. until now. But in a concerning move, Spotify is also laying off 200 employees in a reorganization of the podcast division. These layoffs come after Spotify had already cut 6% of its overall headcount earlier this year and saw the exit of Don Ostroff, who was the chief content and advertising business officer. Last fall, Spotify actually ended up canceling 11 podcast shows. They were pruning the original lineup to weed out what the company determined were just underperforming titles. So the next phase of Spotify's podcast strategy is apparently supposed to focus on delivering more value for creators and users. And underpinning this effort is continued leveling up of our advertising offerings and the introduction of more business models in order to help creators make meaningful money for their work. And to be honest, as a Spotify podcaster, I look forward to seeing what they come up with. I'm going to be very curious to see what comes out of these meetings and these announcements. Um, And it could be a pretty exciting future. So let's see what Spotify can do. The SAG after strike has halted production of many movies being filmed, but one film in particular may be haunted as well. It turns out that souvenir hunters are haunting the Beetlejuice 2 movie set up in Vermont. State police are investigating two different thefts. One is of a large lamppost that's topped with a very distinctive pumpkin decoration. And the other is the 150-pound abstract art piece, and that was taken from the vicinity of a cemetery in East Corinth. Someone bundled up the lamppost, covered it with a tarp, and fled at a high rate of speed in a pickup truck back on July 14th, while the theft of the cemetery piece was taken several days later, according to the state police. This eye-catching artwork was featured back in the 1988 original comedy classic from Tim Burton, and it was supposed to feature in the upcoming sequel. Vermont State Police said in a recent Facebook post, we tried saying the name of this stolen statue three times, but it didn't come back. Well, I mean, I guess it was a nice try. Never trust the living. You tell them, Juno, old girl, you tell them. No arrests have been made in the two thefts. So hopefully somebody will return it. But some commenters were saying that if it's truly from East Corinth, you're never going to see this again. And I really hope that that's not the case. Beetlejuice 2 is seeing the return of Michael Keaton as the iconic character, alongside Wednesday's star Jenny Ortega as the daughter of Winona Ryder's Lydia from the original movie. Winona Ryder is also supposed to be returning for this. Although little is known about the actual plot of the film, it is said Willem Dafoe has recently joined the cast and he will be a law enforcement officer in the afterlife. Meanwhile, Catherine O'Hara is among those returning from the original film. Hot dog, we get more Delia. And let's see what she can come up with this time. The upcoming Beetlejuice sequel has been in the works for some time and it was actually teased all the way back in 2011. Michael Keaton later admitted, He'd been in talks for the project, and filmmaker Tim Burton confirmed that the sequel was 
closer than ever in 2017. But now, it looks like Beetlejuice 2 is finally underway. Well, sort of. The ongoing strike of the SAG-AFTRA actors likely means production isn't going to get back to normal until this strike is resolved. So, I mean, at least that gives the Vermont State Police a little more time to track down that stolen statue. Let's turn on the juice and see what shakes loose. Hit it, Mr. Belafonte. And Raven, you know, you can dance too. I don't drink a rum. Well, speaking of iconic and amazing music musicians, it is sad that we report that Tony Bennett, the jazzy crooner of the American Songbook, has passed away. Now, Tony Bennett, who is the singer whose melodic clarity, jazz-influenced phrasing, he embraced the audience with his persona, and he had a very deceptively warm and simple interpretations of musical standards. And it helped spread the American songbook around the world and won him generations of fans. He passed away on July the 21st at his home in Manhattan. He was 96 years old. His publicist, Sylvia Warner, announced his death. Now, Mr. Bennett had learned he had Alzheimer's disease back in 2016, and his wife, Susan Benedetto, told the uh, AARP magazine back in February of 2021. But he continued to perform, and he recorded despite his illness. His last public performance was back in August of 21. He appeared with Lady Gaga at the Radio City Music Hall in a show called One Last Time. Bennett's career of more than 70 years was remarkable, not only because of its longevity, but also for its consistency. Hundreds of concerts and club dates and more than 150 recordings, he devoted himself to preserving the classic American popular songs. Stuff like written like Cole Porter and the Gershwins, Duke Ellington, Rodgers and Hammerstein, and, and others. For his initial success as a this jazzy crooner who wowed audience in Times Square back in the 1950s, through his late-in-life duets with the younger singers, most notably Lady Gaga, which he actually recorded albums in 2014 and 2021, he was a very active promoter of both songwriting and entertaining as timeless noble pursuits. My Mr. Bennett stubbornly resisted record producers who urged gimmicky songs on him. And in the late 60s and early 70s, who were sure that rock and roll had relegated that he preferred to this dusty bin, perused only by a single dwindling population of the elderly and nostalgic. They really thought that only old people were going to listen to his music. So they really just were like, it's all rock and roll. You need to do rock and roll. He's like, no, he followed this path of the greatest American pop singers of the 20th century. He followed Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby, Judy Garland, Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, and he carried the torch for them into the 21st century. He reached the height of his stardom in 1962 with this celebrated concert at Carnegie Hall, of all places, and the release of his signature song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco like this I left my heart 
San Francisco. That's such a beautiful classic sound. It's really hard to find these days. But Mr. Bennett, he did see his popularity really start to kind of dwindle because of that onset of rock and roll. And his career kind of had a, a rough going in the 1970s with professional difficulties and failing marriage, drug problems, and so on. He ended up making his film debut in 1966 in the reviled Hollywood story called The Oscar, who he played a man betrayed by an old friend. And no, he didn't pursue an acting career. He pretty stayed true to music. He did play himself in several movies, like the Robert De Niro, Billy Crystal gangster comedy of Analyze This, and the Jim Carrey, Bruce Almighty. He was 64 when The Simpsons cartooned him, and was 82 when he appeared on the HBO series of Entourage, performing another trademark song called The Good Life. He lived pretty much in the, the same Manhattan apartment where he died for pretty much his entire adult life, with the exception of a couple of years in Los Angeles and London. He is survived by his wife, Susan, and his sons, Danny and Day, his daughters, Joanna, Antonio Bennett, and nine grandchildren. Rest in peace, Mr. Bennett. I'm going to go ahead and leave another song going for a moment. This is Tony Bennett's last duet with Lady Gaga called I've Got You Under My Skin. I think it'd be a nice little send-off. I've got you under my skin I've got you deep in the heart of me You're so deep in my heart You're really a part of me On to a little bit of a lighter note, Biker Mice from Mars and ALF, both nostalgic shows from the 80s and the 90s that have largely been relegated to the entertainment dustbin, are reportedly making a comeback, and it's all thanks to Ryan Reynolds. Reynolds, man, what isn't he into these days? I mean, he's working on Deadpool 3, a possible Detective Pikachu 2, woohoo, and now this. New versions of the cult classic shows are on their way, courtesy of Fubo and Reynolds' own production company called Maximum Effort. Reynolds said in the official announcement, Some people know that I am a motorcycle enthusiast, so it was only natural for us to jump on board Biker Mice from Mars. Maximum Effort and Fubo both look forward to putting a new spin on this cult classic with our friends at Nacelle. Unquote. Hey, Raven, how did that theme song go again? I know you liked this show, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the one. Okay, I, I, I remember this one now. It's a pretty, pretty iconic song when you get back to think about it. This new Biker Mice from Mars will come 27 years after the original series has ended. The original 90s cartoon told the story of Throttle, Moto, and Vinny, three biker mice who were the only survivors of a Martian war against a race of obese, foul-smelling invaders known as the Plutarchians. After a crash landing in Chicago, the trio must defend Earth from the Plutarchian threat as the horrifying aliens are looking to plunder the planet for its natural resources. But it is currently unknown who is going to voice the trio of the biker mice. 
Now, Nacelle recently obtained the rights to Biker Mice and rolled out a new line of toys based on the cartoon earlier this year. And the upcoming show's pilot will be directed by Brian Volk Weiss and includes Reynolds as an executive producer. Biker Mice will be the first animated series on the Maximum Effort channel. However, it's not yet known when the show will debut. Now, as for ALF, Reynolds chalked up its return to his, quote, irrational love of ALF growing up, unquote. I don't blame him. I love the show as well. The well-coiffed puppet who was created and he performed by Paul Fusco starred on ALF, the show, from 1986 to 1990. And the hit sitcom centered around this family who takes in this alien and hides him from the nosy neighbors and the government after he crash lands in their garage. Seems to be a pattern for these aliens. They like to crash land. So no, this is not going to be some sort of Oppenheimer tie-in with there was an episode where ALF tries to convince the U.S. president to end its nuclear program because he didn't want Earth to suffer the same fate as his home planet of Melmac. Now, the oddball NBC sitcom will return on maximum effort on Saturday, July the 29th. Ought to be pretty fun. The reprise through a partnership between Reynolds and Paul Fusco, the recently rebranded Shout Studios as well, it won't consist of full-length episodes. So instead, the channel's going to air the old ALF episodes alongside these ALF-centric shorts highlighting brands like Mint Mobile and Hymns, products that Reynolds is related to. Maximum Efforts Marathon dubbed the ALF Catcher Day Marathon because of the alien's famous hunger for cats. Let's have a snack now. We'll get friendly later. Snack? What, what kind of a snack? You got a cat? You eat- okay, well, he tried to eat cats, specifically Lucky, but was unsuccessful. Anywho, the marathon is going to feature ALF episodes and the ALF starring sponsored content, and it will also feature Maximum Efforts Podcasts, the podcast. There's a tongue twister. This channel is available through Fubo and uh, Amazon Freebie, LG Channels, Flex, The Sling Freestream, and more. Oh, no, not again. Alf, no! (laughs) Guys, I'm so very sorry about that. Um, All right. Where were we? Oh, right. Ubisoft has had to clarify it will not delete game libraries due to game inactivity after fans have panicked. Well, over the weekend, fans of the Ubisoft games underwent a minor panic as rumors spread that Ubisoft might be spontaneously deleting inactive Ubisoft accounts, which permanently destroys digital game libraries if the users are not logging in often enough. However, Ubisoft has now clarified that this is a false rumor and users' digital game libraries are safe, even if the account is inactive. The rumors kicked off when there was a tweet that circulated, and it was showing an email entitled, Ubisoft Account Closure Due to Inactivity. The email instructed that the recipient's Ubisoft account had been temporarily suspended and would be closed permanently in 30 days, unless the closure was canceled by the account owner. The email was confirmed to be legitimate by the official Ubisoft support Twitter account, which reiterated the given instructions for canceling the pending account closure. All right, cool. But 
That cued some panic screaming and yelling, and boy, did it really get loud. While all of this is legitimate, what caused people to panic was the context offered by the original poster, who claimed that, quote, you will lose all of your games purchased forever, unquote. Well, in an email to IGN, Ubisoft clarified its stance on account deletions, and the publisher confirmed that it has, for many years now, deleted inactive accounts in accordance with the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, on how long companies are permitted to store individual personal information. Now, the company claims its policies are aligned with the legal requirements and with the standards of the industry, and they also serve as fraud prevention. However, Ubisoft went on to clarify its criteria for the account deletion, noting that it absolutely does not include accounts that have purchased games attached to them. And the publisher takes into account the activity of the account since its creation, the libraries, the accounts that have uh, purchased PC games are not eligible for deletion, and emphasis on Ubisoft games, the duration of the inactivity. And in practice, as of today, they said they've never deleted accounts that have been inactive for less than four years. And Ubisoft added that emails, such as the one that was circulating that caused all this trouble, are sent to users 30 days prior to deletion. So if a user tries to log in during that window, they're just going to get a notice and it will send them a link to reactivate their account upon login. There is more information about this policy and it's on the official Ubisoft website. So no, if you haven't logged into your Ubisoft account in years and you're, you look, you're not on the verge of losing your library. Now, of course, there's still plenty more to worry about regarding digital ownership of games or other media and the risk of losing those libraries at any time, especially at a time when digital game releases seem poised to push out the physical copies any day now. They're trying to get rid of physical copies. But rest assured that at least in this situation, Ubisoft isn't just obliterating accounts willy-nilly however they feel like. Well, like I said, for now at least. The Entertainment Software Rating Board, also known as the ESRB, has proposed a new verification mechanism, which it says will ensure parental consent is properly obtained under the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act rule, known as CULPA. The board, which regulates the age ratings for games in the U.S. and Canada, has developed this mechanism with Yodi, which is a digital ID platform and Super Awesome, a company specializing in online child safety tools. Super Awesome was acquired by Epic Games in 2020, and considering Epic's background about child, pri- child privacy, pardon me, I do have some concerns. Remember Epic was told they had to pay a $275 million penalty just this last year for violating children's privacy laws after settling with the FTC. So not a good start, but let me continue. According to Culpa, services in the U.S. must gain parental consent to collect personal information from children under the age of 13. So the ESRB's proposal titled the Privacy Protection Facial Age Estimation would use facial age assurance software to verify the age of the parent. 
If their estimated age is lower than the threshold, given as age 25 in the proposal, they would not be allowed to provide consent for the child. So they're going to say, we're going to scan your face. And if we think that you're younger than 25, you're not going to be able to give consent for this child to play this game. The proposal was published by the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, which enforces consumer protection laws, and this was done back on July the 19th. The FTC is now seeking public comments on various aspects of the proposed method, such as whether the public believes it could pose a risk to personal information or provide biased results for different demographics. Yodi and and Super Awesome have been working together to explore the viability of facial age estimation for rare verifiable parental consent tongue twister back all the way since 2019 and the company stated in the draft application uploaded by the FTC that the ESRB was getting involved with the project in early 2023 so a few months ago although this proposal is currently going through the U.S. government channels for approval If it is approved, it would mean that the privacy protection facial age estimation could be used to provide parental consent for any child under the age of 13, regardless of where they live, so long as the service that's being used is based in the U.S. The feedback was pretty negative, and it was quick. A user by the name of Amber, she stated, absolutely effing not. What part of child online privacy protection involves uploading facial recognition data to some random third party. I also seriously doubt the effectiveness of being able to tell apart older looking teens and younger looking 20s just by using facial recognition metrics. It's just a pipe dream, unquote. Another user by the name of Somapic said, I did one of those guess the age app things once where you upload a photo and it assigns ages to everyone's face. It thought I was 22. I'm 35. My girlfriend was 6, she's 33, and her brother was 45, he was 30. I don't think the technology is quite there yet, although I personally like the compliment, unquote. I'm not sure how far this proposal is really going to go, especially because they're asking for public feedback. I get the reason behind it. We want the kids to be protected. And for those yelling about having a database of kids' pictures, Do remember, kids can and do go get passports. They're already in a database. But I see the concern. Where is the scan going to take place? Is there going to be a camera in the home? Is it going to be a phone app? Who's going to run it? How secure can they make it for those that don't want to even consider, just not even want to talk about data breaches? But it seems with our current technology, this is just my opinion, that this may be a little bit more than we can handle. But I do think it's worth looking into. I do think it's worth researching for viability in the future. But I don't think we're ready for it quite just yet. But an interesting proposal. We'll see where it goes from here. Well, well, well. Bite my shiny metal and praise Hypnotoad. Epic just made an epic announcement and has announced that Futurama is the next big IP that is getting dumped and mushed into the pop culture slurry that is the free-to-play battle royale juggernaut of Fortnite. Alright, so for those of you who aren't as cool as Slurms McKenzie and don't know much about Futurama, here is the 411. Back in 1999, Simpsons creator of Matt Groening 
and writer David X. Cohen developed an animated comedy starring a man who accidentally gets sent into the future by a cryogenics and a prank pizza order. He quickly meets up with some lovable scamps like Bender the Drinking Robot and goes on wild adventures including aliens, sci-fi cliches, and modern-day celebs who live in the future as heads in jars. The show has been canceled and brought back a few times, leading to this month's newest season on Hulu. And just in time for Futurama's third return, Epic is teasing a very big Fortnite event. On July the 25th, the official Fortnite Twitter account posted a very, very short teaser showing the infamous Planet Express delivery spaceship flying towards a large building that was displaying the glorious Hypnotoad. Well, as is tradition, and just like in the opening of every Futurama episode, the Planet Express ship ends up crashing into the building's digital billboard, destroying it in the process. Sounds about right. As part of the short teaser and the tweet, Epic also published a link to a YouTube video that was sent live today, July 26th at, double-checking time, it was done at 4 o'clock in the morning Central Standard Time. And to be honest, the content of the teaser looked epic. Now, as far as who else or what else could appear in Fortnite as part of this animated crossover, there's a lot of options. We could potentially see Futurama characters like Bender and Fry, Leela, and even Zap Brannigan show up in the store as skins. Perhaps a backpack that contains the lovable Nibbler or Fry's dead dog fossil that we do not acknowledge that that episode exists. Do we really need to bring Seymour into this? I'm serious. And maybe... Just maybe the robot devil could make an appearance too. Terminator director James Cameron has weighed in on the AI discussion, the potential dangers that it could present in the future, stating, I warned you guys in 1984 and you didn't listen. In a new interview with CTV News, Cameron considered the motives of those developing the technology, questioning whether it's for profit or for defense, as he acknowledged that the threat AI could pose to humanity as further advancements are rolling out. He said, quote, I think the weaponization of AI is the bigger danger, and I think that we will get into the equivalent of a nuclear arms race with AI, and if we don't build it, the other guys are going to for sure build it, and so it'll escalate. You can imagine an AI in a combat theater, the whole thing just being fought by computers at a speed humans could no longer intercede, and you have no ability to de-escalate, unquote. Hollywood is currently reckoning with how to put AI in the hands of the craftspeople behind movies and TV shows without foregoing the crafts of the people in the process. This topic has been hotly debated in the recent weeks as the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, SAG-AFTRA, and the Writers Guild of America, uh, WGA, ended up joining forces in this historic double strike and with both unions demanding protections against AI technology. In particular, SAG-AFTRA has argued for protections against AI using actors' likenesses without their consent and without compensation. And the WGA has been raising concerns about AI replacing writers on scripts. People have been experimenting with ChatGPT for months now on 
hey, I fed this computer episodes of this show, write me an episode. And we've seen it could be pretty disastrous, but hopefully not replacing the writers anytime soon. Now, Cameron is of the opinion that the technology won't replace the writers anytime soon because, quote, it's never an issue of who wrote it. It's a question of, is it a good story? I just don't personally believe that a disembodied mind that's just regurgitating what other embodied minds have said about the life that they've had, about love and lying and fear and mortality, and just put it all together in a word salad and then regurgitate it. I don't believe that having something like this is going to move an audience, unquote. Now, as such, Cameron did assert that he wouldn't be interested in AI writing stories or even open to accepting an AI-produced script at the present moment and saying, look, let's wait 20 years. And if an AI wins an Oscar for best screenplay, I think we've got to take them seriously then. I'll be back. See, even Arnold knows what's up. I bet you will be back. But while Cameron is against using AI in the filmmaking world, it is a topic he's expressed interest in exploring further on screen. He previously said he'd like to tap into the subject of AI, not just bad robots gone crazy, as if he were to relaunch the Terminator franchise in the future. The last movie that Cameron directed in the franchise was Terminator 2 Judgment Day. He had no involvement with the three sequels that followed, but he did return as a producer for Terminator Dark Fate. It's time for the box office breakdown. This weekend saw the legendary launch of Barbenheimer, and hopes for a successful box office were really, really high. Who actually won the top spot, though? Well, Barbenheimer didn't just work, it spun box office gold. The social media-fueled fusion of Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Dolan's Oppenheimer brought moviegoers back to the theaters in record numbers this weekend, and it vastly outperformed projections and gave a glimmer of hope to the lagging exhibition business amid the sobering backdrop of the strikes. Warner Brothers Barbie claimed the top spot with a massive $155 million in ticket sales from North American theaters, surpassing the Super Mario Brothers movie, as well as every Marvel movie this year, as the biggest opening of the year, and it breaking the first weekend record for a film directed by a woman. Universal's Oppenheimer also soared past expectations. It took an $80.5 million from fewer theaters than Barbie was in, in the U.S. and Canada, which marks Nolan's biggest non-Batman debut and one of the best-ever starts for an R-rated biographical drama. Now, the Barbenheimer phenomenon may have started out as a good-natured competition between two aesthetic opposites, but as many hope, both movies really benefited in the end. Internationally, Barbie earned $182 million fueling a $337 million global weekend, while Oppenheimer did an additional $93 million in the 78 territories it was in. And so it actually ended up ranking above Barbie in India. It took in $174 million globally. The only real casualty this weekend was Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which, despite strong reviews and a really healthy opening weekend, fell 64% in Weekend 2. 
It was severely overshadowed by Barbenheimer, as well as the blow of losing the IMAX screens to Oppenheimer. The Tom Cruise vehicle ended up adding 19.5 million, so domestically, 118. Not bad. But Barbenheimer is not merely counter-programming. While a certain section of enthusiastic moviegoers did overlap, in aggregate, the audiences were pretty distinct. 60-something percent of females went to Barbie, 60-something percent of the males went to Oppenheimer. Both of the movies did score well with the critics, 90% and 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Audiences gave both films an A cinema score. Pretty awesome. And social media has just completely been awash with reactions and takes all weekend long. Good, bad, problematic, everything in between. It's really a, a kind of organic event cinema, water cooler debate that no marketing budget can buy this kind of, of news. This is pretty awesome for them. Barbie and Oppenheimer were the last films on the 23.3 calendar to get a massive global press tour. Both went right up to the 11th hour. Remember, the SAG after strike prevents them from doing red carpet events. So every last moment they could squeeze out to do these tours. Oppenheimer even pushed up its London premiere by an hour, knowing that Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, and uh, Killian Murphy were going to have to leave the event to symbolically join the picket lines by the time the movie began. So they bumped up their premiere to give them time to do the red carpet appearance before they had to go. Rounding out the top five for the weekend, Sound of Freedom came in at number three with 20.1 million. He said Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 was number 4 at 19.5. And Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is holding at number 5 with an additional 6.7 million. And now for something different. Weird and offbeat news lovers unite for I Have Stories for You. A sea otter launched into the national spotlight after images of her aggressively wrestling surfboards away from surfers off the coast of Santa Cruz, California, circled on social media, and it's building a fan club as she continues to evade capture. There's a team of wildlife experts with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the nearby Monterey Bay Aquarium. They've been trying to capture the five-year-old animal known as Otter 841, since last week, because they say she's posing a public safety risk. At this rate, she really should be renamed to Experiment 626. They say they want to examine her, quote-unquote, and relocate her at a zoo or an aquarium to no avail. She now has a growing fan club with people showing up every day to get a glimpse of her spending time sunbathing on the rocky shore, diving in the water, and chomping down on crabs. Jessica Fuji, the sea otter program manager at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, said the team has faced some challenges in its pursuit, including bad weather. She said, quote, the main issue is more than just her ability to evade, because this has been an ongoing effort. She's really wary of those nets. Federal and state wildlife officials didn't return messages to the Associated Press seeking comment on their effort to catch Otter 841. The mischievous mammal was made famous by a professional photographer who started posting photos and videos on social media that showed her aggressively approaching surfers, 
getting on top of their surfboards, or at least one occasion biting and tearing chunks off the board. Santa Cruz photographer Mark Woodward said they can't throw a net over her in the water. They can't tranquilize her because of fear of her drowning. So they really just need to get her hands, their hands on her. The team trying to capture her has been using a baited surfboard. She's gotten on the board multiple times in the past several days, but as soon as a wildlife official towing the surfboard carrying her gets near the team's boat, she just dives right off. The otter's aggressive behavior is really unusual, and the reason is unknown. According to federal wildlife officials, they said aggressive behavior in female southern sea otters may be associated with hormonal surges or just due to being fed by humans. Otter 841 was born in captivity and she was released into the wild in June of 2020. She is tagged with her number and has a radio transmitter that the officials have been monitoring to keep tabs on her. And they said this isn't the first time this otter has been aggressive towards humans. She was observed approaching people in late May of 2021. And then in May of 2022, she was spotted with a pup, a, a baby otter in the Santa Cruz area, and four months later, she exhibited similar aggressive behavior. Meanwhile, her fans want her to be left utterly alone. Just leave them alone, just let them have fun, hasn't bitten anybody, roughs up a board. It's like a dog with a chew, you know, according to Jackie Rundell, a Santa Cruz resident who has visited the Bay recently. Southern sea otters, whose population dwindled to about 50 back in 1938, are currently managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service and are listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act and are protected under the Marine Mammal Act and California state law. Now, with about a population of around 3,000, sea otters play a very fundamental role in maintaining the healthy ecosystems of the coast by preying on sea urchins that can multiply and just eat their way through the kelp forest where marine creatures survive. This is really kind of an utterly crazy story, but let's see how long it takes before they can capture her. She's doing a pretty good job keeping away. We'll see how much longer it'll take for them to get her, if they can get her at all. Back in 2019, an Arizona mail carrier grilled a steak, yes, a steak, on the dashboard of his unair conditioned U.S. Postal Service truck in order to highlight the inhumane conditions in which his colleagues must work to handle daily deliveries. Fast forward a little bit, 2022, Joe Brown, a 20-year-old from Phoenix, Arizona, used the sweltering desert heat of his home state to reportedly cook burgers and steaks and even bake a cake inside his 200-degree car. And this attracted millions of viewers to his unconventional cooking show on TikTok. The culinary experiments started back in 2020. So 2020, as the coronavirus lockdown started forcing people his age to go back home, Brown started using the roof of his home, his actual house, as an experimental oven before moving his experiments to his car in April of 22. During that summer's brutal midday heat in the West, Brown's closed 2022 Honda Accord Sport apparently creates a really similar dry heat environment as an oven. He has since slow cooked meals and other desserts in his car, although not every experiment has gone as planned. His frozen pizza, that one didn't pan out. 
And now the National Weather Service has gotten in on this. The National Weather Service office in Midland, Texas, put this most recent record heat wave to good use and baked a batch of cookies on the dashboard of a hot car. They said in a Facebook post that it was about 105 degrees Fahrenheit outside the car and approximately 190 degrees inside the car when they placed the cookie dough on the dashboard. They left them there to cook for four and a half hours. Now, the weather service said the cookies weren't quite the golden brown that they're used to, but were, in fact, fully cooked. The employees wrote, can confirm they are done and delicious. Officials said that this project and previous projects highlight the dangers of hot cars, pointing to the people that leave their, their pets and their human children in hot cars where damage could be done to a very severe degree. They wrote, this heat is incredibly dangerous to anyone left in a hot car. Look before you lock. Dang it, Cookie Monster, now we're out. All right, we need more cookies. Who's going to call the weather service to order another batch? All right, well, it looks like that cookie delivery is going to take a little bit, but we had some bombs that took over the theaters this weekend. Cookies in the car. The bird is no longer the word. It's just a letter. We had ALF and Biker Mice and Futurama. I think we covered a lot of bases today. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I do want to remind you that I do include the links to all of my sources in the comments so you can see what I see and more. Also, don't forget to drop us a comment or send us an email if there's a story you want us to cover. Join us next time as we check out the latest in entertainment news. Remember, stay comfy in the starter zone. Go get cookies. This is Amanda. Good luck and have fun. You have been listening to The Starter Zone with Amanda. I am Raven. We thank you for your time and support. Without you, we simply would not be. Please hit that like and subscribe button and visit us on Facebook and Twitter at The Starter Zone. Have we missed something? Have something to say? Leave us a comment or send us audio clips for your chance to be on the show. We invite you to come back for more exciting news and commentary on the world around you. See you next time in the Starter Zone.